You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flocks. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I command you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have showed that by the working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, for they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, We pray now that we might, uh, through your word, see Jesus, love him more, trust him more, that we might love the church uh, as Paul loves it, as uh, you love it, that loving and caring for the church, we might ourselves be built up in unity and in love and in faith. Uh, God, we pray for your help in the next 30 or 40 minutes or so. You might lift our eyes to Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Good to be back standing here after a few weeks off. We spent, my family and I spent a couple, uh, a few, about a week and a half or so in Florida and then got back just in time to uh, sit alongside you all last week. But it's good to be standing here. Uh, I think I've mentioned before that 
I've always been somewhat interested in people's last words and like their deathbed statements. That's kind of weird, I know, but oftentimes uh, people's last words uh, will show the things that they think to be most important. Oftentimes they're not. Sometimes they're just instructions or something, but George Washington is reported to have said on his deathbed, he said, I am just going. Have me decently buried and do, let, do not let my body be put into the vault in less than three days after I am dead. And his uh, secretary, Tobias Lear, uh, to whom Washington was saying these words, was so affected by this that he realized that Washington was about to die. He couldn't speak. He just nodded his head. And Washington said, do you understand? And repli- uh, Lear replied, yes. And Washington said, tis well then. And then he died. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, perhaps not in a moment of like, the things that he considered to be most important, uh, told those in the room, said, please put out the light. And that was it. Uh, those were his last words. Uh, but I have definitely shared with you all uh, what the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said just before he died. His whole family was surrounding the bed. And uh, I hope to one day be able to say something like this. Uh, he said, I am going to the three persons with, with whom I have had communion. They, sorry, this is, this is just set a record. Like 30 seconds into a sermon, I'm already crying. Uh, I am, let me try again. I am going to the three persons with whom I have had communion. They have taken me, I did not take them. I could not have imagined I should have ever had such a measure of faith in this hour. Christ cannot love me better than he does. I think I cannot love Christ better than I do. I am swallowed up in God. And he died. (laughs) Uh, His son was so impressed, not like, oh my gosh, dad, that was so amazing, but like impressed uh, with the words of his father that he immediately grabbed something and wrote down those words. Uh, Something incredible. This is what the last words that this man said before he died and what he wanted to leave his family with. Well, here in Acts 20, Paul's not on his deathbed here. He's still going to talk a whole lot. Many more words will follow this, just even in the next eight chapters or so of Acts. Um, And he's going to live for likely about another decade before he is executed. But what you just heard read is a last charge. This is more or less final words, last words to some men, to some pastors of the church at Ephesus that Paul knows he will never see again. Paul knows that he'll likely never see them again in this age, so he has one final chance to impress upon them the things that he thinks are most important. These charges are very similar to the kinds of things that Paul would later write in First and Second Timothy to his pastoral protege, Timothy, who himself would later become a pastor in Ephesus. Uh, very similar things here. This is a personal and intimate final charge that Paul gives to these guys. He even says here that he lived and ministered amongst them for three years. So maybe more than anywhere else in the book of Acts that we've now spent many months going through, perhaps more than anywhere else in the book of Acts, this sounds like the Paul that we know from his letters. This is so personal, so emotional even as he is speaking to these men. He's going to tell them and using himself as an example that the church really matters. He wants them to care for it diligently and well. Do not let it die. More than that, don't just let it die. Help it to flourish. Help it to grow. 
And so we're going to see Paul charge these pastors in three ways, more than three, but we're going to put it under three headings, that he wants them to preach for the church, he wants them to protect the church, and to provide for the church, to preach, to protect, and provide for the church. Oftentimes, this text will be opened at like a, a pastor's conference or something, and rightly so. There is so much here for pastors to consider as they pastor and shepherd their own churches, but this is all a text, or this is a text that we all need now. We need this tonight. So let's, let's do it. Let's do some digging here. First of all, Paul challenges and charges these pastors to preach for the church. At the end of Clint's sermon last week, at the beginning of chapter 20, uh, we got to Paul. We ended where Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem as he is wrapping up what our maps at the back of our Bibles will generally call Paul's third missionary journey, his third and final missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. And in verse 17, we find out that he stops in Miletus, which is a small town about 39 miles south of the huge city of Ephesus, which is just about the same distance, maybe a little bit further than where we are right now in downtown Albuquerque to like Berlin, a little bit further than that. So Paul is calling these pastors to likely walk down to Berlin and meet him there. So we're not quite sure why he asks them to come to Miletus, uh, rather than him just going to Ephesus. Probably, either two reasons, he either doesn't want to get stuck in Ephesus. Last time he was there, there was a huge riot. And remember what Clint shared with us last week? He really wants to keep moving. He wants to be back in Jerusalem by Pentecost. Um, Or he has, we know this, he's collected a ton of money from many different cities and churches that he is taking back to the church at Jerusalem. And maybe he is a bit nervous about protecting all this giant pile of money that he is taking back to Jerusalem. So maybe just to stay in the smaller towns. But either way, all these elders come. They are ready to hear from Paul. He seems, right off the bat, to be defending his work and his ministry. Just like Kyle showed us two weeks ago from chapter 19, Paul is committed to like, distinguishing his ministry from the regular and expected traveling teacher who would just set up shop for a few months, maybe a year or so, make as much money as he possibly could, milk the city dry, and then move on. He is not doing this. This is not what he did. Uh, Paul is saying that right off the bat. Maybe he's been hearing accusations, some now that he's been gone from Ephesus for a while, that some are trying to discredit his ministry. So he says in verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying he's not a coward. He was not here just to make a quick buck but he spoke with courage and conviction despite the plots against him. But on the other hand, and at the same time, he was not a coward, but he was also not a bully. He wasn't some kind of like theological tyrant demanding that it is his way or the highway. No, he served the Lord. He served the Ephesians with humility, with tears, 
with trials. This is very much like what he reminded the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, where he told them, but we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. Which I don't think I've ever said publicly, maybe here, but 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8 is about as close to a life verse or like a philosophy of ministry verse that I have or hope or aim to continue to grow in. I'm so thankful to be doing work amongst other elders, amongst other GC leaders who are committed to this as well, who are gentle and humble, sharing not just the gospel, that is not just the doctrine of the gospel, but sharing their very lives. That is how the gospel has changed us for one another. Not just what we can get out of each other, but for the good of one another. Paul's going to later talk about suffering and affliction and a little bit different context, but I'm so thrilled to be part of a people who sacrifice for one another. It's not really suffering, but we can absolutely be willing to give of an evening where we would have otherwise just sat on the couch and watched TV to help each other move, to sit and pray with each other through sickness and suffering, to give of our dinner tables and our living rooms to those who are on the margins of our community. Again, that's not suffering, but it is giving of ourselves for the good of others. And surprise of all surprise, that kind of suffering or sacrificing for each other actually produces joy actually produces a thick, deep, knitted community in which there is deep and committed joy. And we need to move on, but can I encourage us something, with something here uh, that we can all mutually initiate with each other? That is, that we should not get frustrated with each other when, like, no one is reaching out to me. Well, we can reach out to others, We can initiate as well, instead of just waiting for others to initiate with us. But Paul is proclaiming that Jesus is alive, that he is king, a truth that demands, that invites repentance. That is, if Jesus isn't alive, then go on living your life however you want to. Everything that Clint just prayed for, if Jesus is not resurrected from the dead, who cares? Live your life however you want. And Be free and don't give it another thought. But if Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, then the floodgates of implications are flowing for all of our lives. And so Paul says that he preached a gospel of repentance. That is not just telling them a whole list of don'ts, but replacing the don'ts with a life of do's, of obedient, joyful life of following Christ and in verse 22, he says he's, he's going to Jerusalem constrained, literally bound. Think like handcuffed. He is handcuffed by the Spirit, going to a place where imprisonment and suffering await him. Like Clint showed us last week, Paul is following in the footsteps of his king. Not the kind of suffering for the sins of the world that Jesus was walking toward, but like Jesus, Paul now has set his face toward Jerusalem that no servant is greater than his master. Paul is walking in the footsteps of Christ, his story becoming Paul's story. 
Jesus' story becoming all of our story as disciples of him. And it's because of this that Paul is joyful to go to Jerusalem. He's, he's not a masochist. He's not just walking into a place wherever I can find the greatest amount of suffering or something. But that is not a bad thing to be constrained by the Spirit where the Spirit wants him to go. He joyfully follows wherever God would have for him because he is so united to Christ that is exactly where Paul wants to be. So he says in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What matters in his life to him? A healthy body? No. What matters to him? Jesus. For Paul, how many people should know this? As many as he is able to share with. And what's the best way to do this? Well, to keep moving. Now, missions and frontier evangelism is certainly part of that. Paul wants to keep moving. But you know what else is part of that? You know what else is part of as many people hearing the gospel as possible? Planting healthy churches. If speed and if multiplication were the most important thing to Paul, then he had wasted his time in spending three whole years in Ephesus and coming back around again to these elders to make sure that they were leading in maturity, leading a healthy church, not just move, 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 multiply, 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 more conversion, more conversion, but health, long-term health and maturity in Christ. That is what Paul is pouring his life out for. The gospel of the kingdom and for healthy churches. And if that means that he will be imprisoned or beaten for it, then so be it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is better than it all. I'm reminded of Richard Vermbrand, a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned in the late 1940s. He was imprisoned until, off and on until 1964 by the Soviets who had invaded Romania. And he says, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. What an amazing, like, can you imagine the kind of suffering and yet suffering with joy that this man and the Christians alongside him, countless Christians throughout the millennia, have suffered at the hands of those who would try to squelch and extinguish the gospel. And yet, like Paul, they counted their lives nothing. Later, Vermbrand would say, a man really believes not what he recites in his creed, but only the things he is ready to die for. Those are the things that you really believe. And I hope and pray, if the Lord would have it for me, for any of us, that in these times of relatively little suffering, especially from outside external suffering, that he is shaping us, that he is maturing us, that if moments like those actually do come, that we would remain faithful to Christ with joy. Paul will keep preaching and keep preaching and keep preaching until the Romans will finally separate his head from his body. 
But I don't think Paul is necessarily saying goodbye here to these Ephesian elders because he thinks that like Jerusalem is the place where he will meet his end. Necessarily, the first step of uh, his end, the first step of his coming death. After all, he tells the Romans in the book of Romans that he expects to come and see them. And more than that, he expects to move on from Rome to go on to Spain. He kind of expects to use Rome as like this hub of new missionary activity. So I think, he thinks, he's going to get a really big beating in Jerusalem. He's going to be perhaps imprisoned, publicly humiliated, just like he has many times before in different cities, but he'll eventually allowed to be moved, or allowed to be moving about again. As the Lord would have it in his providence, Paul will use Rome as a missionary hub. He will just be imprisoned there. But he tells them, he says, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He has been preaching for the church. He has been preaching the good news of the kingdom of Jesus. So he gives himself to the Ephesian elders as an example. An example to be followed as he follows Christ. But next, he tells them that they are not only to preach, but they are to also protect, protect the church. He tells them, secondly here, in verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He, res- he reminds these elders of one of their main jobs. They are to be pastors in the original sense of the word. The word pastor just means shepherd. Think about like the word pasture, like a grassy place, a pasture, where a pastor leads the sheep. Now, of course, the word pastor doesn't appear here in this verse that we just read, or in fact, in any of this last speech that Paul gives to these Ephesian elders. Elder does, that word appears, and here in verse 28, the word overseer appears, the the Greek word from which we get our English word bishop. Now, elder and overseer seem pretty synonymous, pretty interchangeable in this chapter. There is not, I am convinced, there is not to be, Paul does not have in his thinking uh, the idea that there is to be one person that comes out of the group of elders to become the bishop, to become the overseer of that city or the region. All of the pastors, all of the elders are to do that. They are to oversee the flock. And what, how do they do that? Well, they are to pastor. Again, that word doesn't show up, but who does Paul tell them to oversee? The flock. It is a flock of sheep that Jesus has given them to oversee. He calls them to lead and protect the flock. They are to care for the flock, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, Jesus himself is the chief shepherd, the chief overseer, the shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep. First, he came wandering, or he came after and following and finding these wandering and lost sheep, leaving the 99 to find the one, searching for his sheep in perseverance, searching for his sheep in dogged commitment, when the sheep perhaps didn't even want to return home. Brother, sister, maybe, maybe this was you in a time of life in which you found yourself not wanting to follow Christ, and yet he was faithful. He was committed to you, so much so that he would give of his life and his faithfulness to you. Oh, the 
deep, deep love of Jesus. Friend, if, if you are with us tonight and you would not call yourself a Christian, perhaps tonight would be the night that you would and that you hear the wooing, the inviting, the loving voice of Christ to yourself. Perhaps maybe even like C.S. Lewis even did, calling himself the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. He said that he was dragged into the kingdom, kicking and struggling, resentful, darting his eyes in every direction for a chance for escape. Now, that's not to mean that Lewis's initial conversion was not a faithful one, not one wanting to follow Jesus. Sheep can be stubborn, but Lewis wasn't faithless. It is just so that he had become so utterly convinced of the reality and the goodness of Jesus that Lewis initially felt like he had no other choice but to follow Christ. If he is alive, if if he is good, I cannot go any longer in indifference. But of course, that quote comes from his autobiography entitled, Surprised by Joy. He was surprised by the goodness of Jesus and then surprised in the joy that comes in following him. But Jesus not only searched for his sheep, he then went willingly to the place of his death that they might live. His death for theirs. His life to give them life. But Paul is saying this because he knows the game plan of the enemy. He has seen it over and over and over again in his travels and in these cities. He has written letter after letter after letter, giving many similar warnings. Because he's hearing, verse 29, he's hearing... And he knows of what's to happen. In verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He knows that there are threats here. Now, let me say something up front. There has been lots and lots of talk over the past many weeks, months, even years about this thing or that thing being the greatest threat to the gospel of our generation. There's any, any number of things that on any particular day might be the greatest threat to the gospel. Let me assure you of something. The gospel is not under threat. The gospel is the power of God for salvation and no amount of false teaching or false practice, or whatever you might think of can threaten the power of God. What can be threatened is the witness of the gospel, the clarity of the gospel, the application of the gospel. That when the saving power of God for sinners through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus becomes cover for some sort of nationalistic ploy for power, when the gospel gets reduced to social programs for the marginalized or for the poor, when the gospel becomes an excuse to keep living your life however you would like without following Jesus in repentance, well, yeah. Now the witness, now the clarity, now the application of the gospel, the clarity, understanding what the gospel is, does, and is capable of, now becomes threatened. But it's kind of like if if someone developed a pill for a cure for cancer or something. But then doctors started prescribing this pill. It is a cancer cure, but they started prescribing it when people got broken legs. 
It's the wrong thing. This is so much more than a broken leg. Or when patients get cancer, they start, instead of swallowing the pill, they start like holding it up to their forehead or something. That's, that's not what it does. You must take all of it. Or the pill is prescribed lightly, rightly, but then the patients just ignore it. They don't take it. They refuse the instructions. The pill is not the problem. The pill has not lost its curative power. The gospel itself is not under threat. But despite our greatest fears about these enormous threats that are coming from the outside, and no doubt there is trouble out there. There is trouble outside the church. Paul warns these pastors to be actually concerned about the wolves that come from within. Now that's not to say that perhaps if Paul were standing here today, he's like, he would be telling the pastors of this church to like look out for that one or that, that person over there, or that person over there. That's not necessarily to say that some of you are like intentionally on the prowl to divide or to devour or to devour this church. But that we are all, every single one of us, even your pastors, we, your pastors, are a threat to the unity and the clarity of the gospel within this church. Paul himself says to the Galatians in Galatians 1, if I, another apostle, even an angel from heaven comes preaching a different gospel, let him be cursed. Just because someone has position doesn't mean that they will always be infallible. And so we must be, as Paul tells them, to stay alert. Be alert. What do I mean that we are all a threat to the unity of this church? Well, I've, I've heard one pastor say that the greatest danger to the church today, perhaps the biggest danger for Westerners today, is the Babylon in your pocket. This thing right here. All of us, we are constantly worried and concerned and in fear, perhaps some Christians are, of all of the Babylon out there, of all of the wickedness out there, and yet we carry it with us every day. This, the smartphone, is the most unrelenting voice of discipleship that you have in your life today. It tells you what to believe, to enjoy, and to, to expect in life. This thing constantly and daily, hour by hour, holds up a picture for you of what the good life is. Constantly dripping the idea that you are the main character of this world and others exist for you. Teaching you to like or favorite or rate or comment on every single thing in existence. So, so much so that you begin to think of yourself as like the arbiter of everything that is right or wrong in the world. Everything that is good or beautiful, just or unjust, sensible or unsensible. The things that now I get to decide, the things that should be paid attention to or like obliterated into oblivion. The Babylon in our pockets disciple us to be entertained at all costs, to, be, to just immediately move on from something if it is hard, to move on from relationships if they are hard, to divide over things that we should not divide over. We are taught that this life is all about what you should want, the things that you deserve, and if we are not careful, this sin-sick poison will eat and destroy us from the inside out. We must 
disciple one another with greater urgency. As Clint mentioned last week, we're excited to start, Lord willing, in August, this coming fall, an education class, likely in the 2.30 to 3.30 hour before this service, to help us understand and know the Bible more clearly, teach us how to read the Bible, getting us to read the Bible more and with one another. Eventually, in years to come, even parallel classes on just practical Christian living. Because here's the deal. Because the screens in our lives, more than just this, but our computers and our TVs and all of the screens in our lives are so unrelenting. 10 hours, maybe 20, maybe 30, maybe 40 hours a week that we are given to these things. An hour and a half service, one 35 or 40 minute sermon per week is not enough. Is not enough. We need more. We need more, not just from formal classroom structures, but from each other. In meeting with each other in our GCs and outside of our GCs, in living rooms and in coffee shops, initiating with one another. And again, uh, Marcy and I were talking, my wife Marcy and I were talking this week that we were going through nearly all of the discipleship relationships that we've had in our life, those who were discipling us. And here's the thing. We couldn't come up with anybody, really, that had come, had come looking for us. We went looking for it. We went looking for them. I think these things have taught us, again, that the world exists for you, that the world should come to you, that the world should serve you, and then we sit around and wait for others to initiate with us, and then we get frustrated when they don't. Instead, look around this room. Find somebody that you think, hey, I respect that person. I, I think I'd like to become more like that person as they're becoming more like Jesus. And approach them. Say, hey, do you have any avail- availability in your life that you'd be willing to give to me with some regularity, some regular time to just talk about the Bible, to talk about life, to talk about the things that you're struggling with and how you're thinking through those things as a Christian? Move towards those relationship, those relationships, not just for discipleship, but even now, on the other side of that, for you to initiate with others, to disciple others. And on that note, our children in this church need more. And I don't just mean that we really need Christchurch kids to finally fully reopen. That's not what I mean. Parents, what if our highest goal became thinking about the kinds of church members and followers of Jesus our adult grandchildren will be like. That is, I think I can often get short-sighted in thinking about cultivating the kinds of respectable citizens that my adult kids will be. I hope they have a good job. I hope they have a good reputation. I hope they help improve my reputation. I can become so short-sighted in that kind of parenting. But it's often been said that one generation believes the gospel, a second generation assumes the gospel, and then a third generation denies the gospel. Within 50 years, a believing, fruitful, faithful church can become a church that has denied the gospel. That quick. We all need each other urgently. I need you. You need me. We all need each other. My children need you. 
to teach them, to remind them of what it means to follow Jesus on the narrow road that leads to life, a life of grace by faith, of repentance and forgiveness, of obedience and joy. So initiate with one another. As trite as it is, it takes a village. It really does. And not just it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to raise me and to keep me faithful to Christ. I need you. We need each other. But unfortunately, this whole like third generation denying the gospel thing seems to have happened in Ephesus. Paul later writes 1 and 2 Timothy to Timothy as he was pastoring in Ephesus, probably seven to ten years after the events of Acts 20 here, where all sorts of false teachers Paul is talking about in 1 and 2 Timothy, all sorts of false teachers are corrupting and dividing the church. The kinds of wolves that Paul said would come are actually doing the kinds of dividing that he was warning against. And then, about 30 years after that, in Revelation 2, Jesus himself rebukes the Ephesians who have abandoned their first love. They have abandoned Jesus and his life and his world-changing gospel from good works of love and mercy and holiness to a life of living however they'd like. Believe, assume, deny the gospel. May it never be, and may we live with greater urgency with each other. Just yesterday, my family and I, all six of us, were sitting on the couch watching a soccer game, a ho-hum, boring soccer game, when one of the greatest athletes in the world, a 29-year-old with a long career in front of him, went into cardiac arrest on the field, collapsed. They were doing chest compressions on live TV. They stripped his shirt and put a defibrillator on him. We thought he was dead. We thought, my children thought that they had just witnessed someone die on live TV. Now, amazingly, he was resuscitated and is responsive and alive and unbelievable. Grace of the Lord. But just that act, terrifying as it was on live TV, sitting around on our couch, brought about so many good conversations that we are not guaranteed tomorrow that every day is a gift from the Lord. And so treat today with urgency. Today matters in knowing Christ. We are not guaranteed tomorrow to know him more deeply, but we are given today, so treat it well. Steward today well and with urgency for each other. All right, I've kind of gotten off the path here, but Paul is urging, urging these pastors, and then presumably so that these pastors would then urge the church to, verse 31, to be alert. Be alert, stay awake to how we might be drawn away from Christ, but then with eyes wide open, move toward him, fixing our eyes on Christ and loving him with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. But then lastly, Paul commends them not only to preach and protect the church, but also to provide for the church. Again, Paul defends his ministry, likely countering accusations against him that he was just in it for the money. He says that he coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He wasn't some traveling uh, snake oil salesman trying to manipulate and defraud city by city by city as he went. No, he worked, verse 34, he worked to provide for himself with his own hands. He didn't just work for himself, though. What does he say? He actually worked hard to help the weak. 
Now there's a real sense in which I am so glad when I encounter folks uh, who have not bought into the American dream, when they realize that they can live a happy, joyful, contented life without a huge house and the fanciest car. And that is absolutely true. And I'm so glad when people learn that lesson, especially in their younger years. But there are ditches on both sides of that road. Oftentimes, I think a disenchantment with materialism, with money, with stuff, with the American dream, can then be sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, be used as an excuse to not work hard. To just clock in and clock out, just in order to get the bills paid. I don't care about having the fanciest car, so I'm just going to just go to work, take the paycheck, or even drop out of school, not pursue advancement in the workplace. Again, hard work and job promotions are not in and of themselves uh, evidences of godliness. And advanced degrees that lead to bigger paychecks can just as easily, again, ditches on both sides of the road, just as easily lead to idolatry, lead to godlessness of the pursuit of things. But do you see Paul's logic for working hard here in verse 35? He worked hard with his own hands to help the weak. To, as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Paul, channeling Jesus, says how good it is to give away, to meet and provide for the needs in the church. You cannot meet and provide for the needs of the church unless you have a decent paycheck, unless you have some margin for generosity in your life. We cannot give to the needs of the church to send and care for those that that we send out with the good news of Jesus well. We work hard so that we can be generous. Or as Randy Alcorn says, God gives us money not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. To give us things that we might then turn around and give away. That our fingers aren't so tightly held onto the things that God gives us, but that we give for the good of others. Now I'm sure the subtext here that Paul is saying, or that Paul is thinking about as he's saying these things, is the pile of money that he's sitting on. Maybe he's not like Scrooge McDuck or something on this giant pile of gold coins that he's using as like a lectern or something. But I think everyone knows he's taken a ton of cash back to Jerusalem. He's saying, I I didn't do this just for myself though. There was both a famine in Jerusalem and as well as what a moment, what a moment of clarity as Paul will just in a few uh, days or weeks, arrive in Jerusalem with this gift from Gentiles. That Gentiles would generously give of themselves to the Jews. God was truly making one people out of two. And the tribute of the nations was coming to Israel's king. To King Jesus, Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the ruler of heaven and of earth. But then, Paul and these elders, after all of this, after these charges that he has given to them, after these last words, they sob together because they know that they won't see each other again. Now, of course, like we like to say around here, Paul and these elders know that with Christians, there's never really goodbye. And yet we have, and we want even more of this kind of culture, of building a culture of gospel goodbyes. That the gospel is motivating and propelling goodbyes. 
of sending more workers into the field, of sending more people out from this church someday to plant more churches. And those moments are and will be terrible. With weeping and snotty sobbing. But Jesus is better and the good news of the kingdom is worth it. And so like Paul wanted for these Ephesian elders, our mission and goal, our existence here is for a healthy church. One that is growing so that we might send. One that is discipling so that we might endure. One that works hard so that we might give away. For the glory of Christ our King who reigns and rules, who lives and loves, who himself shepherds us beside still waters even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He is the good shepherd and we are but the sheep of his pasture. So let us walk together, stumbling as we are, dumb and stubborn sheep as we are, trusting in the one who will not stumble, who did not stumble and will carry us through to the end. Let's pray that he would. Our Lord Jesus, we throw ourselves wholly on your cross. Your cross on which you suffered and died, but your cross on which praise be to God is empty today. The holes in your hands and the holes in your feet, the scars which have not gone away, but now remind us of your love for us. That even now, with those holes in your hands and feet, you sit at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over our small lives. Oh, Spirit, help us. Help us to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus. Help us to walk in faithfulness to him, even when we are faithless. Lord, give us quick repentance. Give us the desire for obedience. Make us a church that is unified and that loves and serves each other well, that with urgency disciples one another well, that we might know your word, that we might know you. We want to know you, Lord Jesus. We consider our bodies to be of no value. That is our joy, uh, our, our comfort in this life to be of no value, but using this life, using this age to prepare and to invite others into the age to come. And so we pray even now, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. In your name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com.